0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews or conversations with spiritually awakening people. I've done hundreds of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the Past Interviews menu. This program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it, if you feel like you've benefited from it um, and would like to support it in any amount, there are PayPal buttons on every page of the site and there's also a donations page which explains other ways to support it. My guest today is Steve McIntosh. Steve is a leader in the Integral Philosophy Movement and author of three books on spiritual evolution, two of which I've just been reading. The Presence of the Infinite, Evolution's Purpose, and Integral Consciousness and the Future of Evolution. Um, In addition to his work in spiritual philosophy, he also serves as President of the Institute for Cultural Evolution, culturalevolution.org, an integral political think tank focusing on the development of values. Before becoming a writer and activist, Steve had a variety of other successful careers, including founding the Consumer Products Company, now in Zen, and practicing law with one of America's largest firms. He lives in Boulder, Colorado with his wife and two sons, and his website is stevemackintosh.com, which I'll be linking to from his page on BatGap. So, Steve, I take it you're no longer practicing law, right?
1: Oh, no, no, I haven't done that since the 80s. Okay,
0: because integral philosophy is so lucrative, that must be why? Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, just because my, my focus is on you know trying to make a difference in the world rather than making money.
0: Yeah, I hear you. As I was reading Steve's stuff and listening to a couple of his talks, I thought, wow, this guy probably aligns more closely with my way of thinking about things and experiencing things um, than just about anybody I've interviewed. So I got pretty excited about this interview, and I I asked Steve to send me a list of main points that he wants to be sure to cover with me um, so that we can really do this comprehensively.
1: Although um, we're not going to be able to cover all of those.
0: Probably not. Yeah. So gives us something to go on. And as usual, this interview is being streamed live on YouTube. So if, as you're watching it, you have a question that you'd like to ask, go to the upcoming interviews page on batgap.com and scroll to the bottom and there you'll see a form through which you can submit your question. So as a place to start, Steve thought it might be good to do the following. I'm going to just read the point he made and then we'll start talking about it. The evolution of, we want to talk about the evolution of consciousness and culture and its relevance to the contemporary condition of progressive spirituality. I just want to interject here before I finish reading that point that I just got into a little online debate. I posted something on Facebook about how it was the 50th anniversary of my learning to meditate and how I feel like I've progressed so much in the past 50 years. And this Neo Advaita guy got on there who was a little bit notorious and challenged me on the whole notion of progress these types of people tend to say things like the universe is illusion there is no such thing as progress you're already enlightened and uh, yada yada and so I've been going back and forth with this guy a bit and others have been chiming in so then along comes Steve and we're going to talk today about progressive spirituality I thought it was kind of timely anyway let me finish reading this point we want to talk about seeing the relationship between progressive spirituality in America and the emergence of the postmodern worldview and this worldview can only be seen accurately by acknowledging its evolutionary relationship with the worldviews of modernity and traditionalism. So those are a lot of big words, and I'm not sure everybody understands what Steve means by all those words. So let's get rolling, Steve, and in the context of your response, maybe define some of these key terms, like what is modernism, postmodernism, traditionalism, all that stuff.
1: Sure, thanks. Well that's a good way to start. Well, let me just start upstream just a little bit from that. Uh and say that what I'm writing about, especially in the spiritual realm, my work is focused on both spirituality and politics, mm-hmm. and there's some overlap, but there's also clearly some differences there. Mm-hmm. On the spiritual side of my work, which is uh, obviously what we're going to be focusing on today, I'm a representative of, of what's coming to be known as evolutionary spirituality. right? And, th- and that evolutionary spirituality is, is a, a loose family of views, but I think what all these uh, uh, approaches to spirit have in common is that they recognize that what we've come to know about the evolution of the universe over just the last few decades is, is a spiritual truth in its own right. In other words, the, the revelation of evolution from science is a mother load of truth that goes beyond scientific theory or physics or biology. It, it, it impacts spirituality in significant ways, because just the universe's process of becoming can teach us a lot about our purpose in the universe, the nature of spirit, how we can experience spirit, etc. So a subset of this larger evolutionary view of the universe, at least the becoming of the finite universe in the context of the infinite being of the universe, right? Being and becoming, or the kind of the one way to frame the two big things that we can see in the universe. Things is not the right term, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Within that, we can see that that evolution is occurring in the cosmos. The matter is evolving. It's occurring in the in the biosphere, right? Life is evolving, and this this structure of evolutionary emergence, whereby something more keeps coming from something less, continues in the domain of what Teilhard de Chardin called the noosphere, right? Or the the realm of human history, right? Evolution is continuing. It's not the same thing as biological evolution or cosmological evolution, but it's a a continuation of the universe's becoming which builds on and uses the accomplishments of previous levels of development. So we're recognizing these these steps of development and evolution that has brought us to our current point in the history of the universe, and among those steps some of the most significant for understanding culture and understanding where we are in the world and how we can most effectively work to make the world a better place, is recognizing that, that this domain of the newosphere includes the evolution of consciousness and culture. That as human consciousness evolves, and it evolves along many lines, it can't be reduced to some linear trajectory, but one of the most significant ways that human consciousness evolves is by participating in the evolution of cultural structures which emerge. So culture also evolves along many lines. But among the most significant kind of units of culture are these worldviews, values-based worldviews that are agreement structures you know that 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 cohere across generations that have a self-organizing tendency to them, these worldviews. So to be specific, prior to the Enlightenment about 350 years ago, the world's, the majority of the world's population was divided among the great religious civilizations. I mean, there were people living in indigenous settings that weren't part of those, but certainly Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, Islam, the, the, the great world traditions have, ve- even though they all have different teachings, they all have very um, similar uh, things in common, right? They're all emphasizing some kind of spiritual teaching. They all, sort of bring about law and order, they all have kind of a feudal, uh, political system. So we can classify these different religious, great religious civilizations as what, uh, through the sort of general heading of the traditional worldview. Then 350 years ago, of course, modernism or modernity or, or, or this sort of scientific rational worldview emerges, and although we can point to many things that are markers of this emergence, The the, the most sort of comprehensive way to understand it is a worldview, a system of values, a a personal identity that includes both a cultural agreement structure as well as the individual consciousness. So like there's traditional consciousness, which is guided by the values of a traditional worldview. There's modernist consciousness, which is sort of informed by and, and given perspective by this modernist worldview. And then, beginning you know, about 50 years ago or so, beyond modernity, a, a, another worldview—a a worldview that that tried to transcend the limitations of modernity. You know, its materialistic outlook, its emphasis on status and, and uh, accomplishment, its hyper rationalism, and its its uh, questioning of spirituality altogether. This more sensitive worldview, this this uh, worldview that that sought to Create a more loving and kind, and, and rediscover spirituality in a non-traditional way. Right. In other words, modernity. Many modernists carried forward their traditional religious beliefs. They continue to believe in God in many ways. And there was kind of a truce in America in the 20th century between the traditional worldview, you know, mostly Judeo-Christian, and the, this modernist worldview. But beginning in the 60s, of course, there, there's this emergence of a new historically significant worldview, which goes by many names. Progressive, countercultural, green, uh, but but the, the term of art that we use to define this overall worldview that's got many different ideologies is hard to pin down, but it does cohere as a worldview like modernity, like traditionalism, and that's what we call postmodernism, right? Mm-hmm. So the term postmodernism itself is a battleground of meaning, right? Many people think of it as just critical academia. You know, they think of Michel Foucault or Jacques Derrida. And that's certainly a subset of this larger critical worldview, but postmodernism also embraces the environmental movement, the social justice movement, uh, multiculturalism, and most importantly for our purposes, what I call progressive spirituality, right? So progressive spirituality is also hard to pin down. But again, beginning in the 60s, as, as many sensitive thinkers began to try to rediscover spirituality at a level that didn't involve going back to traditional religion they found many different forms of esoteric and not so esoteric spirituality they found it of course in Eastern religions of, of uh, Buddhism and Hinduism as those were transplanted to the west uh, they found it in indigenous religions like you know paganism and shamanism right they found it in esoteric versions of Christianity like Gnosticism and they found it in psychedelic experience they found it in sort of mixes and blends, but even though it's eclectic and uh, characterized by many different currents, some of which contradict each other, this idea of progressive spirituality is a clear cultural trend. After the youth movement of the 60s faded, a lot of that energy went into discovering progressive spirituality. So in the 70s, there was a fluorescence of progressive spirituality. And a lot of that was focused on finding the intersection between science and spirituality. Right, a, An iconic book from that time was the Tao Physics, where Fritschoff Capra argued that you know, what the ancient mystics knew, the cutting edge of physics is now just starting to discover. And while I think Fritschoff Capra's claims were sort of overstated, it was nevertheless intriguing to many of us in the 70s that there could be this intersection. And that's kind of been a a focus of my own spiritual journey, is, is discovering and contemplating and thinking about uh, the intersection of, of spirituality and science, which is bridged largely through uh, spiritual philosophy, you know, which is where integral philosophy comes in. But just to finish my description, in, in the 80s, it was, it, the progressive spirituality continued to develop, but it was sort of underground culturally. Then in the 1990s, progressive spirituality experienced the second fluorescence whereby what we used to call the New Age became a major cultural phenomenon. It was the the publishing industry's largest category by far. There were thousands and thousands of New Age bookstores that opened across the country, and it really felt at the time like it was a kind of a spiritual renaissance. And that fluorescent period of progressive spirituality continued into the 21st century, but since 2008... You know, no one can objectively really understand progressive spirituality as a whole, but it's lost some momentum, right? I mean, there's still a market, there's still conferences, there's still publishers, you know, there's, there's still excellent uh, podcasts like the Buddy at the Gas Pump, and I'm still as dedicated to participating in progressive spirituality as ever, but I think it's important to admit that, the, that we're not in a period of fluorescence as we were 10 years ago and earlier, but that's another subject. So the, the term New Age has become a term of derision for now, right? It's sort of no longer, the, the New Age is reserved for the, the more magical thinking or, or sort of the least sophisticated elements of progressive spirituality. And we could say that, you know, of course there's, you know, there's Buddhism or Hinduism or these other things are, are freestanding, but as I would argue, what ties together all the different flavors of progressive spirituality are the, the mores and the agreement structures that all of these forms of spirituality exist within this reality frame, this worldview of postmodernism, which includes welcoming pluralism, and there, there are all kinds of other cultural projects and obligations that postmodernism is, is, is focused on because of its place in history, because it's trying to transcend modernity, because it's trying to rescue the world from modernity and, and its de- depredations in some ways. Progressive spirituality is colored by this larger postmodern worldview um, that it's embedded in. So evolutionary spirituality is a, is a, an attempt to go beyond the limitations of this postmodern worldview to a worldview that transcends and includes postmodernism, modernism, traditionalism, pre-traditionalism, tribalism, all the worldviews in the structure of emergence in human consciousness and culture um, we're, we're trying to extend that structure of emergence with a new worldview, and the spirituality that goes with it, I would argue, is evolutionary spirituality. So that's kind of a quick overview of what I mean when I talk about modernity and postmodernity and traditionalism.
0: Great. I don't know if this um, what I'm about to say and, and read from your book is a perfect rejoinder to what you just said, but I th- think part of it is... Who would it be? the The modernists that are, that tend to uh, comprise most of the scientific community in having a materialistic uh, viewpoint that, that there is no that, that the universe is sort of a random thing and we are biological robots and, and when life ends that's you know lights out and all that stuff. Right. Well,
1: I would say that certainly there is science which yeah. is you know primarily emerges with modernity. There are plenty of postmodern scientists. And then there's the philosophy of scientism, right? Mm-hmm. which is not science. It's an interpretation of science that has a, a metaphysical commitment to materialism or physicalism, yeah. right? and it's highly reductive. And so scientism is perhaps the best term for, for what I think you're getting at.
0: Yeah, okay, good. And um, I, I've always, not always, but I, I'm kind of fascinated with listening to people like that, um, people like Sam Harris and all who you know, actually have, has one foot in spirituality but on the other foot in sort of atheism and, um, you know, who would reject some main points that you outline as um, necessities from the viewpoint of evolutionary spirituality such as the necessity of a, spir- a spiritually real evolving soul, the necessity of human free will, the necessity of spiritual of a spiritually real evolving finite universe and, well, he would probably agree with that one, or at least that the, huh. these, the, the universe is real. The
1: finite universe is real, yeah.
0: Yeah, And um, this necessity of recognizing the ultimate reality possesses the personal powers of intention and love. I think he would reject three of those, as would many of his ilk, you know, the, the new atheists and so on. Just to throw in the Neo-Advaita folks, the, the strict non-dualists, one thing I think they would need to explain, and also the atheists, is if the universe is illusory or if it's merely material. How in the heck did it come about what who or what caused it to emerge and why does you know close examination reveal such infa- unfathomable intricacy i mean what intelligence would it take to design and operate a single cell and each of us has trillions of them and you know and the whole universe as we go out from our individuality is just a unbroken mass of uh, laws of nature functioning in coherent, predictable, intelligent ways, uh, to, to regard all of that as mere illusion and not try to understand how it works, or to dismiss it as kind of this random, mechanical, accidental thing, just seems absurd to me.
1: Sure, but those conclusions, although I agree they're absurd, I mean, let's bracket Advaita, Vedanta, for a moment, because okay. that's a separate, an important subject, yeah. but... but. Um, Scientism or atheistic materialism is reacting, it, it's, it's, it's in this larger cultural structure of evolution, which I outlined, mm-hmm. and they're very much reacting to traditionalism, traditional ah. religion, right? So, so they're, they're, they're sort of whipsawed into having to deny so many things to try to get away or escape from what they see as uh, the, the mythical illusions of this traditional worldview. So they're yeah. sort of looking back in history and in, in reaction to that, um, and while they may recognize progressive spirituality, they would just characterize that as another version of religious thinking that's mm-hmm. a, a, you know pre-modern. Mm-hmm. So um, you know they're they're being kind of whipsawed by the currents of history. Uh, they're they're trying to discover truth. Um, part of the way we can at least um, give them the benefit of the doubt or be sympathetic to their to somebody like Sam Harris. Is that, uh, is that the way this, this, this structure of emergence uh, unfolds, the way something more keeps coming from something less, at least here in the realm of consciousness and culture, is that we're, we're pushing off against what's wrong, right? Our, our point of departure to make things better depends on what's wrong with current conditions. And so that, it's like a sailboat tacking against the wind, right? In other words, you can't sail directly into the wind, you have to advance obliquely. And so th- that's a way of describing a dialectical progression, right? Another way of thinking about as a river meandering in a floodplain. It has to kind of go back and forth. So we see this with <clears throat> traditionalism as a, as a dominant worldview for 2,000 or more years in human history. Modernity emerges. It's pushing off against. It's it's trying to tack away from the religious uh, view. And so they naturally are... are they throw out the baby with the bathwater, if you'll pardon the cliche, um, in their attempt to get rid of all myth. Um, they create their own myths, uh, such as the world's merely material or that everything could be reduced to matter in motion. That's uh, a, a kind of a, a, a modernist version of a fundamentalist myth. And, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's, we can be sympathetic about it. It's not all wrong. It's an attempt to move away from a previous level of development which itself requires further development to correct um, the shortcomings and pathologies that occur at that level.
0: Also, when they espouse atheism, and we're also talking about guys like Christopher Hitchens and Daniel Dennett, and um, what's another guy, I forget his name, they do so by... Attacking a, a very simplistic straw man notion of what God is. I mean, you and I would probably say that we don't believe in the same God they don't believe in. <laughs> no,
1: I agree. <laughs> yeah, sure. And and yeah, I mean, atheism is a um, you know it's a force in culture. It's certainly a big market, but um, it's something that I think those who have had uh, authentic experiences of the spirit are not um, fooled by. You know, that we've transcended that way of thinking. Um, But there's no argument, even though they, you know, guys like Harris claim to be rational, right, and logical and subject to logical thinking because their identity is bound up with that materialistic point of view, this denial of free will, this denial of spirit, that there's no argument, there's no rational explanation or no piece of evidence that could convince them because they'll always find some way to justify it or argue around it because they're defending their identity. Yeah. And, and that's something that that's not subject to being dislodged by an argument.
0: It's true. I mean, I, for a long time I've wanted to get Sam Harris on the show, and I'm a little scared of the idea because he's so darn smart. But also, what you just said, I think he and others like him are so invested in what they've been hammering away at for a number of years now that to, to even give an inch on it would um, re- expose him to, you know critical feedback from his avid followers, and uh, it would be very difficult and brave of him to do that.
1: Yeah, the free will thing is, is what was is what I have to laugh at. I just get a chuckle. I mean, here he is, he's very intentional, very driven, very determined, who, there's no such thing as free will. I mean, <laughs> he demonstrates free will in every word that comes out of his mouth, yeah. and yet he's denying it, of course he has to deny it, because free will is a, su- a spiritual superpower that if you admit it, it undoes materialism, but, you know, we're getting ahead of ourselves.
0: Yeah, Actually, I've been thinking about the whole free will versus determinism thing while listening to your stuff, and it's one of those both-and things. Even the Gita, they have verses like, you have control over action alone, never over its fruit, so that sounds like free will. And then there are other verses which say, you do not act at all, it's the gunas of nature, that are doing all the activity, you know, you're just the witness, and, and, and it's not you doing it. So, and that seems contradictory, but I think it really depends upon um, the level at which we're considering the situation and the level of consciousness or experience of the person we're, we're talking about. Um, and you have to be true to your own level of experience. If, if you perceive yourself as having free will but sort of go around saying that, you know, the, the devil made me do it or something, you can get yourself in trouble. <laughs>
1: sure. Sure. And of course, you know, the, the interaction of free will, time, determinism, Providence. These are this is a subtle and complex philosophical subject, um, which we can try to unpack, but it gets woolly fast.
0: <laughs> yeah. One interesting thing I found in your book was the um, historical debates between people like Shankara and Ramanuja, uh, Ramana and Aurobindo, and um, the latter of both of those two pairs espoused evolutionary spirituality, apparently.
1: Proto version of it. Yeah. Proto yeah.
0: version of it. Yeah. I found that interesting. And again, even on this one, I would say they were both right. It's just a, mat- a matter of how, where you want to take your stance in, um, in considering the whole thing. Yes. And actually, you also go into some nice stuff about non-duality versus theism, which sort of gets into the whole debate about devotion versus, um, you know, just merging with God and, and, you know, merging with the oneness and there not being anything to be devoted to. But if we sort of take all these heroes of non-duality as examples, Ramana and Papaji and Nisargadatta, they were all very devotional people who clearly had objects of devotion or ideals to which they were uh, devoted in a bhakti sort of way. And in fact, Shankar himself said that the intellect imagines duality for the sake of devotion. In other words, there's something so sweet about devotion that we, even if we acknowledge that ultimately there is no duality, we set up, a, 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 we set up duality in our experience so as to have an I-Thou relationship with something.
1: Sure. Well, that's one way to get there. If that yeah. works for them, uh, you know, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. But I wouldn't describe it. Uh, I wouldn't dismiss uh, the object of devotion or you know the the, the creator of the universe as merely a convenient uh, uh, contrivance. No.
0: <laughs> I know it's not just a human construct. Which gets us back to the whole idea of how did this marvelous universe emerge in the first place and and continue to evolve? It's obviously not just some concept of of ours. It's something that is deeply mysterious and, and profound and, you know, unfathomably sure. intelligent.
1: That's, the way, that's one of the beautiful things about the evolutionary spirituality or what I frame as the, the spiritual teachings of evolution, right? What we now know about the universe that the yeah. ancients didn't know, even Aurobindo didn't know because I mean he knew about biological evolution, but cosmological evolution and the fact that the universe is only three times older than the Earth itself um, these are new facts that only came about in the 60s, and it's only been a few decades. It's taken us to digest the uh, a staggering truth that we've now discovered about the origin of the universe and our place within it. This mother load of truth, as I mentioned, is a supplement to all spiritual teachings, right? So this is a good time to bring up this idea of the circle, the virtuous circle or the hermeneutic circle of spiritual experience spiritual teaching and spiritual practice Mm -hmm. so when i say it's a hermeneutic circle i mean that these three things kind of work together and develop each other right so spiritual practice leads to spiritual experience spiritual experience expands our our grasp on spiritual truth or our the the sophistication of the spiritual teachings we can uh, appreciate and our spiritual teachings guide our practice right Mm -hmm. so as if we if we're able to increase the quality or the quantity of any one of these three elements—practice, experience, or teachings—then we're going to grow spiritually. Mm-hmm. And so, spiritual teachings are often discounted, especially in uh, Eastern traditions, because they're they're focusing on transconceptual spiritual experience or transconceptual truth, even. Right? And that's commendable and understandable. And certainly, you know, in in the depths of the greatest spiritual experience. You look at the activity of the mind, it seems almost comical, right? But but nevertheless, I would argue that that our ability to grow spiritually is directly tied to our ability to make the world a better place, our ability to serve, you know, and that doesn't necessarily mean making a historical impact, it could just be being a loving parent, mm-hmm. right? There's many ways that we can serve and, and perfect the universe, if you will, in, in an incremental small way as agents of evolution. But, but. The, the, the idea that there's no getting away from spiritual truth teachings, right? Even the forms of spirituality which de-emphasize teachings still uh, employ and rely upon uh, concepts of ultimate reality, teachings about the nature of the spiritual path and our purpose in the universe. There's no getting away from it, just like there's no getting away from metaphysics, right? Sam Harris claims to have discarded metaphysics, but he's just substituted one kind of metaphysics for another. So mm. spiritual teaching, Right. What this spiritual teaching of evolution does is it, is it expands what we know about the reality of spiritual truth in a way that supplements and complements all previous forms of spiritual teaching. It doesn't side with one kind or validate one kind, although it corrects and challenges many uh, spiritual dogmas um, by the the evidence. Um, truth teachings of, of the, the, the universe's action. The universe sort of is what it does. The fact that it's in this process of becoming, the fact that something more keeps coming from something less, building on what came before, the fact that value, authentic values emerging in the universe, the good, the true, and the beautiful, despite right all the setbacks and the horrors of, of the world and the evil, and and notwithstanding, everything we can see about the world that is partial or incomplete or or bad, we're in this world where the beautiful, the true, and the good surround us and indeed we're drawn by it like a kind of gravity. So the spiritual teachings of evolution, although they're conceptual, although they rely on philosophy, they do impact spiritual experience and spiritual practice in this hermeneutic circle I explained. Right? So, so the, the, the spiritual teachings of evolution, I would say, challenge certain dogmas like the universe is an illusion. They challenge certain dogmas like that the self is a complete illusion. A key insight of the spiritual teachings of evolution is the way the structure of the entire universe impacts every step of our of our spiritual growth. And so, what I mean by this is that. We, we know that the universe the universe of time and space and matter and energy began 13.8 billion years ago, right? Three times older than the Earth itself. And that this isn't just a supernova or something. It's the beginning of time itself, right? I mean, Stephen Hawking, right, the notorious atheist himself, was showing how uh, his equations show how time itself begins. Right. So this is a staggering fact unto itself. But from the perspective of evolutionary spirituality, this becoming is really contained within a, a kind of infinite universe. Now, time metaphors break down. So if we talk about what came before the Big Bang, it's sort of paradoxical and doesn't make sense because there is no time before the Big Bang. But nevertheless, in the book, The Presence of the Infinite, my 2015 book, I make an extensive argument that the structure of the universe can be understood as infinite being and finite becoming. Right? That within the infinite realm, there's a there's a, this space, this space. Again, these are all metaphors. There's a space wherein perfection or infinity or eternity has been removed. It's like a vacuum. And in that vacuum, the finite universe, because of the absence of perfection, we as finite creatures, as free will creatures, are gifted with the opportunity of gradually seeking by our own lights to kind of evolve the universe as agents of evolution back toward a state of of, of greater of, of the perfection. So it's not just a return to the beginning. you know the universe was sort of in a sense perfect, eternal, infinite before the beginning of time but after or in the course of our evolution in time, as we come to to rediscover perfection through this journey in time, I think that we um, uh, we get a sense of adding to that which was existentially perfect, the experience of becoming perfect, experiential perfection, if you will, by free-will creatures, supplements the existential perfection of the universe prior to the beginning of the finite. Right. So that's all intellectual, philosophical, theological, of course. But the way it relates to our individual lives is this is structure of infinite and finite, or whole and part, is, is a, a, a kind of a giant master circuit if you will. You know, the finite is being drawn by the infinite, but but it takes creatures like us to to pursue the beautiful, the true and the good or the the rays of infinity that shine into the finite. We're pursuing those and we're doing it in a way that's um that's that's conditioned by the physics of spirit if you will. You pardon the oxymoron, right? You know, the physics of spirit, the beha- the nature and behavior of Spirit in the finite universe, how does it manifest, right? Well, one of the ways it manifests is as value, value as a form of gravity, the beautiful, the true, and the good as forms of spiritual experience. And these, these values, they have a, just like electricity, they have a kind of a circuit behavior. So Emerson, you know, Ralph Walter Emerson is, is famous for his observation that every natural fact is a shadow of some higher spiritual fact. Right? It's also been you know, characterized as, as above, so below. And I think this is a principle of spiritual physics. Mm-hmm. And so we can see this phenomenon of, of physical energy, right, the electromagnetic spectrum, you know, the four forces in the universe that physics has discovered. And we can see that these behaviors uh, are, are understandable through physics. right, Maxwell's equations that link magnetism with light, for example. Well, just as we were able to discover the physics of physical energy, One of the things that evolutionary spirituality is working to uncover is, in a sense, the as-above behaviors of spiritual energy, which we characterize, not in some, I mean, there's chi, there's all kinds of things that we might characterize as spiritual energy. When I talk about spiritual energy, I'm talking about goodness, truth, and beauty, about the value magnetism that draws us, that pulls us, right? So it's definitely a kind of spiritual energy, and it has a behavior, and that is this circuit behavior. And the way that appears is as existential or indestructible polarities. And I think that that we can understand the the nature of these polarities even within a non-dual reality frame, right? So we're here in the finite, right? We're in this partial condition, and we're trying to move from the finite toward an embodiment of spirit, an embodiment of the infinite. And so this, this existential condition of the universe, infinite and finite, it's kind of ref- refracted, kind of fractally or self-similarly in the behavior of value. When I talk about polarities, I'm trying to compress a lot of teaching here, but let me just try to give me another two minutes. <laughs> when it comes to polarities, the world is filled with polarities, and most of these polarities are good and bad. But there's a rare kind of polarity where you have two goods, a good and a good. Indeed, almost all kinds of value value propositions or value cre- things, values and things that create value naturally cohere in these polar sets where, whereby there's a relationship of part and whole, but it's a relationship of challenge and support. In other words, the value-creating capacity of, of, of any pole in one of these value polarities depends on the other. It depends on the, the other's challenge and the other's support. So, for example, liberty and equality. Right? We have liberty, equality, and fraternity, the famous slogan of the French Revolution. Right? And in political philosophy, there's this recognition of we want both liberty and equality, but these two things, are in ch- they, they challenge each other. If we had total equality, we wouldn't have any liberty. And if we had total liberty, that would do significant damage to any kind of equality. So we want to have both. And so liberty and equality ideally work together to challenge each other and realize that, that, that if, if one poll is emphasized, to the exclusion of the other then the, that pole's value creating capacity is significantly diminished and it may even become pathological right we can also see mercy and justice right or or being and becoming itself these are examples of of realities that are in this the relationship of polarity and then, then this polarity of of part and whole um, it characterizes spiritual experience and spiritual teaching and spiritual practice. We can see it in world history. So, you know, that comes to this idea of, of the non-dual uh, realization of, of spiritual truth and spiritual experience and its polar counterpart, which is in this relationship of challenge and support, which is uh, based on the recognition of, of a loving creator right, a sort of a, a god concept. Not a straw man, not a cosmic magician, not a being among other beings, but the being who's being itself. So, you know, in, in using advice terms, if, if thou art that, if we are it, and we have awareness, and we can love, um, then how can we not attribute those qualities to the whole? I mean, I mean that's an argument, but uh, maybe we could sort of argue about that. But, but just to say one more thing, and that is that recognizing that that like all value all spiritual experience and spiritual practice this 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 polarity this complementary indestructible existential polarity that we see here in the finite how the ultimate refracts into the finite gives us this this two step two legs of our spiritual progress and in the past people have been pulled to one pole or the other you know either being oblivious to the other pole or rejecting it or fighting against it. But now with evolutionary spirituality and our new understanding of the physics of spirit, we can begin to employ this essential developmental structure uh, in spiritual experience and spiritual teachings to grow spiritually and to develop a more sophisticated and valuable form of of spiritual understanding and and, uh, spiritual orientation uh, here as we uh, emerge beyond our current cultural circumstances.
0: Great. <laughs> my brain's going to explode.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's conceptual, but I can go. <laughs>
0: no, there's a lot of good stuff in there. Get these
1: truths out there. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. I want to try to respond to several of them, and, and then I, I'm sure you'll want to springboard back into you know some embellishment. Um, one is the the hermeneutical circle you mentioned between practice, experience, and teaching. Um, it's kind of like a three-legged stool, to my understanding. It generally needs to be some kind of practice in order for spiritual experience to dawn, although sometimes people have things spontaneously. And often when they do, uh, they don't know what they're experiencing, and they can even be confused and frightened by it. Um, so their knowledge comes in as an important um, Counterbalancing thing to try to you know make sense of what they're experiencing so you need knowledge and there have been instances of you know saints in India who are called babbling saints because they never really got any practical knowledge or teaching they just had some kind of awakening and they don't make a lot of sense and crazy fools and that kind of thing but the most respected spiritual teachers those who sort of stood the test of time were not only deeply experienced in their awakening or their enlightenment but were uh, extremely knowledgeable and wrote very sophisticated texts and commentaries and gave talks and and so on. So there's not, not only is there no incompatibility between knowledge and experience and teaching, but the the three of them really enrich and supplement and support one another. Is which is basically what you were saying, right? You want to comment on that one before I go on? Or?
1: No, no, go on. Uh, that's I agree.
0: Yeah. Okay, good. So another point was I think you said at one point that with the emergence of the finite the the infinite was removed, or something I think you you mentioned that name, that word, but I would say that if it's really infinite, it can't be removed. it has to pervade the finite if God oh, is on yeah, if God is on the present, then he or it or she or whatever permeates every iota or every particle of creation there's and can't remove himself from it. that would include our heart, which is an interesting consideration so our task is to discover the infinite as a finite being, and that's why those Upanishadic phrases such as "That thou art" and "sarvam kalvadam Brahma," all this is Brahman, have arisen because they they depict the experience of those who did that.
1: Sure, of course, you know we're, we have to use words, right? We have to talk in s- sequential sentences. So when I talk about removed, obviously. That statement is made within a, a, a theological context. understanding of known as panantheism, right, uh-huh. where we have that, that, that the infinite or the transcendent is both transcending the universe of time and space, but also imminent within it, pan- yeah, permeating right, it. Right. Within. I mean, that's why th- this paradox of saying that here we are in this evolving universe trying to bring in the beautiful, the true, and the good and grow spiritually, mm-hmm. but everything's already perfect as it is, those are contradictory paradoxes, and that's an example of this ch- challenge and support. Mm-hmm. They're both true at the same time, and they don't have to vanquish each other. Right. Um, but yeah. but definitely, spirit is all around us. Spirit is the substance and the the the, the center and the circumference of everything. Um, but still, you know, things are not perfect. Right. Sure. I mean, in, at one level, they are, of course. We can say that, but in other w- levels, we live in this world of trouble and suffering. And it's our spiritual duty and indeed our our greatest privilege to participate in incrementally reducing that trouble and suffering and and involves both solving problems and uh, fostering further growth. You know, there's a push and a pull. And so, um, you know, that is we can declare it an illusion. And in some ways we can agree that it is. But in other ways, it's not an illusion. It's something that's urgent and something that requires our concern and participation.
0: Yeah, I think maybe a helpful metaphor might be that the the spectrum of the electromagnetic field that we call radio waves always existed but no one knew it was there or knew what to do with it and then at a right. certain point Marconi or somebody came along and developed a very crude radio and, and transmitters and Tesla got involved in that and so on and, and then over the decades radios and televisions and so on have evolved so that the same old electromagnetic field which has been here since the beginning of the universe began to be utilized in more and more sophisticated ways so like that you know pure being or the absolute or infinity or whatever you want to call it has always been there what the the game the universe seems to be playing is to evolve forms more and more more and more sophisticated forms which can more fully embody it and enable it to become a living reality.
1: Sure I would say that at least one of the conclusions that I draw from the spiritual teachings of evolution is the purpose of humanity right What do we add to uh, this universe of existential being and perfection? Well, I I think what our role in the cosmic economy, if you will, is to gradually make things better, to discover what's what's better, what's the good, the true, and the beautiful by our own lights, by our own accomplishments, by our own strivings, by our own discovery. And by finding it out on our own, right, by having it be, in a sense, partially obscure or something that we actually have to put in effort and struggle through time to discover, that this marvelous journey can be characterized as perfecting the universe, right? Perfecting the universe of of self, perfecting the universe of culture, and perfecting our relationship to nature, right? To the physical universe. In other words, we're gradually making things better. And even though here in 2018, it may seem like things are not getting better, indeed we're in a regression politically and in other ways, I would say that taking a larger perspective can give us a sense of faith and hope and trust that while regression and horror and evil is always a real possibility, we're still all gifted with this opportunity to play our part in this gradual perfection of the universe, and indeed perfecting the universe is a, a profound spiritual practice of evolutionary spirituality that has its own philosophy and instructions, you know, the beautiful, the true, and the good. How do you practice evolutionary spirituality? That's a whole other subject to itself. But the point is that we're here to perfect the universe, and that means—and that, and it's not just the external universe, it means the internal universe, too. But these things are tied together. Our, our spiritual growth is partially tied to our gifts, our fruits. You know, like when Jesus says, by their fruits you shall know them. I think that's a literal description of, of the spiritual path. That by which we perfect the universe, the, the beautiful, the true, and the good that we bring into the world— those fruits are really the lung, rungs of the ladder of our own ascent, mm-hmm. right? So that's why it's important to be connected. You can't just be a sage in a cave. You might achieve enlightenment, but unless you go out and bring that enlightenment into the world, I would question whether you really, you know, it's your enlightenment or not.
0: That's interesting. But, you know, again, yeah, Yeah, a question just came in that I think relates to that from Mike in Telluride, Colorado, who asks, is it possible to wake up, to, And enjoy our original perfection without knowing anything at all about cultural history, philosophy, theology, physics, or evolutionary biology and obviously, if we took some of the sages the ancient sages as examples, they didn 't know much about all that stuff, but they woke up and enjoyed their original nature. but maybe what you 're saying is in this day and age, it behooves us to know about that stuff and to be more actively engaged to you know, we'll take it from there
1: right well, I would say that that um Waking up can be done uh, in any situation. There are many people who've just, you know, in a sense, flipped into samadhi, and, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, like you mentioned, you know, some mystical experiences come upon people without any practice or any knowledge of spiritual teachings. But I would say that that there's waking up, as Ken Wilber says, there's waking up, and then there's growing up. Yeah. Right? He, in your dialogue with him, he elaborated on that quite a bit. I, I kind of blanch at the aesthetics of those slogans, but nevertheless. The idea that, okay, awakening is one thing, but ultimately the value of that awakening to our fellows, right, that, our, that earning our awakening involves bringing the, the light that we've received into the light of other people. So we could get really esoteric and say, what's real here in the finite universe? And yeah. I would say the most real thing is spiritual experience. So you can have spiritual experience, an awakening experience, a samadhi experience. But ultimately, making that real in the self involves making that real uh, in culture, in the world, in the experience of other people. All right. So the, the, when I talk about bringing the beautiful, the true, and the good in the world, I'm, I'm really thinking of those value concepts as labels for spiritual experience and for the gradual perfection of the universe. These are directions of evolution. Right. How do we make the universe more perfect? We make it more beautiful, more true, and more good. So these are lines of development. And if you are truly awakened then you have a, I would say a solemn responsibility to use that light to, to bring that light into the world to, yeah. to, to share that spiritual experience with others that's how if it, it, it's a form of spiritual energy as i said at the beginning then that spiritual energy lives in a circuit it's not a thing it's a moving current mm-hmm. and the current of spiritual truth or spiritual light if it if it awake, if it awakens us then the circuit needs to be completed through our teaching, through our service, mm-hmm. through our gifts of the spirit, our fruits of the spirit, so I would say anyone can have it but to maintain it and to continue it and to to be a light in the world, you have to shine that light uh, yeah. into the experience of others
0: not hide it under a bushel, as Jesus said. Mm-hmm. Um, you know in my conversation with Ken, I think he said something along the lines of that ramana 's enlightenment may not have been as full-bodied as it might have been if he had also been able to, you know, run a business or live a more active life in the world. And I thought about that afterwards and a few people complained about it, but I thought, well, you know, it's a matter of dharma. Um, We're not all meant to be businessmen or yogis in a loincloth or musicians or anything else. And that he served his function perfectly in terms of what his function was and he had a huge impact on the world without getting involved in worldly affairs uh, like a businessman might have. And like you were saying earlier, a person might just be raising a family or something and, uh, and, and yet, you know, highly awakened and, and making a significant contribution in, in accordance with their particular Dharma.
1: Sure. You know, certainly um, Ramana Maharshi was a, a significant spiritual sage and a great teacher within the non-dual tradition and helped to advance that. But I would say, as I argue carefully over several chapters in, in The Presence of the Infinite Book, that this non-dual spiritual experience, practice, and teachings represents a kind of an attractor basin. So let me try to unpack this a little bit. So what do we, where do we start? I think we can start with experience, like our touchstone of experience. And we can notice that non-dual awakening, non-dual samadhi, is a a universal kind of spiritual experience that mystics throughout the ages have encountered. And we see it, of course, in all the great world religions. They all have mystics, and and all of these mystics have have described remarkably similar accounts of this non-dual awakening, where the subject and object distinction collapses, and there's just this hyper-lucid experience of oneness that's at least in the experience of these mystics, the apogee of their of their spiritual experience. So non-dual spiritual awakening is, is a major kind of spiritual experience in the world. And of course meditation and, and other practices are associated with that attractor basin of spiritual experience. And there's developed a whole body of spiritual teachings, primarily in Buddhism and Advaita Vedanta Hinduism, but you can also see it in Christianity, uh, sure. you know, in 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 Islam, right? So non-duality, it's major. <laughs> okay? But if we're looking at this attractor basin of spiritual experience, we can recognize, at least I argue for, another profound and deep and world historically significant form of spiritual experience, which goes beyond mythic religion. And that's an experience of the love of God, right? The love of a creator, where the, the subject and the object don't collapse, where there's this sense of originality, right? So I talked about polarities. And uh, Niels Bohr, you know the Nobel Prize-winning physicist, he's famous for recognizing this in the scientific context. He said, "The opposite of a small truth is a falsehood, but the opposite of a great truth is an equal and opposite truth." So an example of that is we are all one. That's one great truth. Uh, you know, the universe is just one thing, and we're we're uh, undifferentiated part of the whole. Each of us. But the opposite truth of that is that we're all original. That as our originality is a spiritual truth about who we are, right? And, and so if we're all one and we're all original, those are two complementary truths that are in this polar relationship. And so when we look at the world body of spiritual teaching, spiritual practice, and spiritual experience, we can see that there is this attractor basin of spirit, which is in this challenging, you know, complementary, but, but at the same time challenging position— and I describe that as a non-duality and, and, for lack of a better term, theism, right? So this, this love of God, there are some spiritual teachings that go with that. And yet, if we look at, again, the history of spirituality and its evolution in the world, there are those who, who deny God, deny the love of God. Indeed, there are many uh, teachings of non-duality that, that do fly in the face of spiritual teachings about a loving creator. But in the book, I do my best to try to show why these two things are, these these two kinds, essential kinds of spirituality, we see it in Hinduism. Hinduism is kind of divided down the middle, right, of of theistic Hinduism and non-dual Hinduism. Buddhism is mostly non-dual. Christianity and the Abrahamic religions are mostly theistic. But the reason that theism is valued less than non-duality within progressive spirituality is, is, I would say, evolutionarily appropriate. Because this world historical uh, movement, away from the mythic, fundamentalist, traditional worldview, it begins politically with modernity, but it continues with the postmodern worldview. The postmodern worldview tries to reclaim spirituality, but it's doing its best not to regress to this mythic, traditional level. And in so doing, it naturally tries to find forms of spirituality that that are far away. So it it associates theism and this experience of God's love as something that is resident at the mythic level or merely a dualistic religion or something that we've transcended. But that opinion or that conclusion, I would say, is colored by the larger cultural needs of postmodernism to move away from traditionalism. But once that's accomplished, once there's no, longer no danger that we're going to become fundamentalists and we're going to move back to a mythic worldview, then we can begin to look and rediscover the spiritual experience, which has catapulted Western civilization into this globalizing world for good and bad, and the power of the the spiritual experience of the love of God, has borne tremendous fruit in the world. I mean, even though it's it's fashionable to recount the sins of Christianity, and indeed I, I don't identify as Christian, but I nevertheless recognize that theism is not something that we've transcended, but indeed it's an existential truth of the universe and a giant attractor based on a spiritual experience, and recognizing how non-duality and, and theism are in this complementary relationship, how one can enhance the other, that gives us an opportunity to grow our spirituality beyond its current condition. Let me just say one more thing, and that is, in the book I talk about the need for spiritual leadership. right? So clearly, spiritual leadership is important. There's many different kinds of spiritual leadership. It doesn't involve necessarily having followers, Right, any thought leader who writes a book that that helps people grow spiritually is, is a spiritual leader. There are spiritual leaders at the traditional level, spiritual leaders at the modernist level, spiritual leaders at the postmodern level, and now we're emerging into this post-postmodern, if you'll pardon the phrase, or this integral uh worldview, and there's spiritual leadership there. But we certainly our society could use more effective spiritual leadership at this time in history. And in order to do that, I would argue, we need to do better. Than the spiritual leadership that's currently being supplied by progressive spirituality, right? That the culture of progressive spirituality is siloed into a a rather countercultural niche, where it's not really having much influence. I mean, mindfulness has has influenced the mainstream. Yoga has. I mean, we'll take it. It's okay, you know. But we need to do better. We need to be self-critical and not be satisfied with our new age niche. I think we have those who can who've experienced the light of spirit have a sacred duty to try to evolve spirituality and make it better. For example, in the mainstream, in in modernism and traditionalism, the insights and accomplishments of progressive spirituality are not taken seriously, right? They're not taken seriously by the media, by academia, by the education establishment. Their spiritual leadership is not effective in moving the society to a more awakened and aware level, right? I mean, it, it did some good in the 90s, and it's doing some good now, but I think we can do better. And I think one of the ways we can do better is to infuse progressive spirituality with more truth, right? make it more true. And we can do that with the teachings of evolution. And one of those teachings reveals is that non-duality and theism are two valid and indestructible and related, complementary, challenging and supporting, contradicting and complementing forms of spirituality that evolutionary spirituality can embrace like no form of spirituality has been able to do in, in the past.
0: Good. Yeah, I like that last bit. That last bit kind of wrapped it up, that they're complementary. They're not opposing They're components of a larger whole or a larger reality, we could say, which incorporates both duality and non-duality. I think that's what the term Brahman refers to. It's just like the totality comes from a Sanskrit. Yeah, I mean,
1: I would resist the characterization of the polarity as duality and non-duality because duality is a dirty word,
0: Yeah. Right?
1: <laughs> so, I mean, in the, that's why I use the term, you know, the the best way to I think about it is in terms of experience, mm-hmm. and that is ultimate oneness, or ultimate emptiness, and the love of God mm-hmm. as a, a particular and individual.
0: Yeah, and regarding theism and non-duality, there's a age-old debate between the Vaishnavites and the Shaivites and so on about whether you want to merge with God or re- retain some Independent status, so as to be devoted to God. And you know, my former teacher Maharishi Mahesh Yogi said, "It's really not relevant to somebody who hasn't actually risen to the point at which the experience of God can be real. And when you reach that point, you'll decide. You know, <laughs> it's up to you whether sure. you want to merge sure. or maintain some uh, independent relationship. But that brings up an important point, which is that all of this stuff is really ultimately relevant if we can experience it." And not experiencing it is kind of like a bunch of men sitting on a frozen lake trying to peer through the ice you know and debate what lies beneath. They need to get down there with the proper diving equipment and swim around and, and experience it firsthand
1: that's a nice analogy I like it yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, regarding uh, what you were just saying about postmodernism um, conveniently, a question just came in from a, a person named Donal in Ireland who asks. Philosopher Jordan Peterson, whom uh, I'm interjecting here, who everybody's making a big fuss about and have recommended that I bring on Batgap and I haven't quite found the angle of why he would be relevant yet, but I'm working on it. Okay, philosopher Jordan Peterson makes the claim that postmodernism is one of the worst blights on Western civilization, basically because nothing can have meaning and everything can have meaning. Is it not dangerous to link spirituality with postmodernism?
1: Okay, well, what... Jordan Peterson means by postmodernism Mm -hmm. is a narrow ideology, right? He also calls it cultural Marxism, right? And that's that's a kind of fundamentalist postmodernism, but it doesn't represent this postmodern worldview. So that's why I said the term postmodern itself is a battleground of meaning, right? But but another way to think about it, if you're hung up on the word postmodern, or if Jordan Peterson has kind of you know, owned that term and and narrowed it down to something that we have to be afraid of. I would say that this this the countercultural emergence that, that has occurred in our lifetimes, right? That we've been participants in. That that, that the culture of uh uh, uh Again, we we have a paucity of language to describe this, right? But this this worldview, this this loose connection of values and perspectives and and uh, mores and and uh, goals. Aims identities that has uh, attempted in our culture to emerge beyond the mainstream worldview of modernity or modernism. That this culture has brought forth a new kind of spirituality, right? Like we can identify, uh, you know, the Vivekananda, right, at the turn of the century, coming to Los Angeles and being the toast of Hollywood. We can see precursors of progressive spirituality prior to the emergence of this countercultural worldview in the '60s so it's sort of percolating for decades prior but the emergence the sort of the burst the birth the bursting out the the breaking with modernity occurs in the 60s and comes to a sort of a maturation in the 70s and has continued to evolve and complexify since then and within this culture of trying to push away from modernism again progressive spirituality is the term i'm using to describe this uh, pluralistic inclusive sensitive culture of alternative spirituality that you know we're about here on the but at the gas pump program mm-hmm. right so i would say that that if postmodernism trips you up use another term but what i mean by postmodernism is much larger than what jordan peterson means. now, now peterson let me say a couple of things about him i admire his work i think he's doing um, important work in many ways but he's a modernist right he 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 sees postmodernism as a threat to liberal values and to all of the accomplishments of rational truth that modernity has brought forward, and, and indeed many of the, the, the great truths of traditionalism, that postmodernism is, is sort of seeks to dissolve those or discredit those. So I can understand why he feels threatened, and indeed if postmodernism were to just sort of perpetrate all its pathologies upon Western civilization, it would indeed lead to a significant regression, but I think we can, we can rescue postmodernism, again my term, my definition, and see it more sympathetically, and see it beyond just this sort of negative ideology which Peterson rails against, by recognizing that it's it's the opportunity for evolutionary advance that was open to this countercultural worldview in the 60s and 70s was to push off against the pathologies of modernity. Right, modernity had brought major evolution to the world in terms of prosperity and science and truth, but it had also brought all kinds of pathologies. So that this worldview is trying to move away from it. And so it did this by this idea of this kind of idea of antithesis, right? Hegel's, uh, simplified dialectic thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. So this is the way, this is a pattern of evolution, uh, uh, that characterizes cosmological, biological, and psychosocial evolution, this dialectical progression. And so postmodernism is an antithesis. It's moving away. That was its opportunity to, um, to reject Uh, to turn on, tune in, drop out, right? To kind of just sort of try to to go beyond all the pathologies that you could see in the modern world. And this indeed created cultural evolution. But because it's in antithesis to the best, both the best and the worst of what came before, this presages, it's unstable. Just like modernism is both environmentally and culturally unsustainable, we want to build on it and go beyond it. Same with postmodernism. It's an antithetical rejectionistic spirit is evolutionarily appropriate, but we can't just rest there. We have to go beyond the antithesis to some kind of synthesis that not only transcends but also includes to, to make it evolutionarily, to make it a, a permanent advance in the structure of emergence. We have to transcend and include. That's another way of describing this dialectical progression. So, postmodernism, you know, clearly the antithesis is requiring a synthesis, but Jordan Peterson wants to just erase the antithesis and rest in the thesis of modernity, and I would say the horse is out of the barn and that the problem the, you know, the, the uh the, the pathologies of modernity are too threatening for us to just rest there. And so, you know, Peterson never asks if postmodernism, or this you know, alternative and antithetical countercultural worldview, if it's so evil or so wrong why has it been so appealing to some of the best and the brightest artists and intellectuals in Western culture? Why is it so appealing to millennials? He only sees the bad. He doesn't see the good. He doesn't see that it's a new layer of care, that it's a new uh, a moral system that has both tremendous advances and, of course, immaturities and pathologies. So, you know, Jordan Peterson's a culture warrior standing for modernity, and I think that, that you know, that battle's worth having. But from an integral or evolutionary perspective, we're trying to go beyond that battle and not create straw men of either modernity or post but realize these are two developmental steps that are leading to a, a, a third step, which is this synthesis I've been talking about.
0: Interesting. Earlier you, talk about, you talked about how you know so many horrible things happened in the earlier part of the 20th century. And um, do you feel that if we zoom out wide enough, and consider that the universe as a whole has an evolutionary trajectory or is governed or guided by an evolutionary force of some sort you know toward greater and greater embodiment of the infinite that we can kind of say that nothing is really a setback that it's necessary for things to be cyclical and even for horrible things to happen and if we 're going to have a relative creation which has polarities, good and bad, fast and slow, hot and cold, suffering and, and happiness, that everything can be seen as the hand of God, sometimes kindly, sometimes harshly, guiding the universe to higher and higher levels of evolution.
1: Yeah, I would take issue with some of that characterization. Mm-hmm. I would say that rather than thinking about the, the that which is propelling evolution as a force, as a push, mm-hmm. I would want to characterize it as as a gentle persuasion or a, a, a gentle pull. Mm-hmm. You know, it's both easily, widely accessible, but easily resistible, mm-hmm. right? So, in other words, the beautiful, the true, and the good are like a kind of a magnetism. They're like a gravity. There's value gravity, if you will. And it's influencing evolution from the inside. It's influencing us in our you know, in our desires, in our intentions, in our aspirations, right? We can feel the draw, the, the magnetism of that which is more beautiful, true, or good. We want it. We, we're striving for it. We can't help it, right? We can always, as humans, we can almost always imagine how things could be more perfect. And indeed, that's the feeling of this this gentle persuasion, this pull, right? And of course, there's an opposite pull. There's entropy, right? There's decay. There's there's the, you know, the, the material things are in the process of of, of going away, but spiritual things are in the process of of, uh, growing and and becoming more perfect, at least, you know again, from the big picture perspective. So what do we say about this, this world of partiality, this world of suffering, this world of horrific evil, right? A lot of the, one of the arguments that comes up most when we talk about the spiritual experience of the love of God is what's known in philosophy as the problem of evil, right? Like how can there be, a loving universe when we had the holocaust right, right. and so there, there are uh, you know, this is we spend 3 hours talking about the problem of evil and all the philosophical twists and turns and and the various arguments and counterarguments that exist in this interesting body of thought but the simple answer for me is that we live in this finite universe and that this finite universe is partial right that it's that it's it's not perfect and that when humans enter the universe, when we emerge and we have this free will ability, then, then like for example, there's, there's no suffering before life, right? Stars may explode, but they don't suffer. But because life is striving to survive and reproduce, this ability for life to suffer, it's prolific, it, it, it promotes life, it helps you know, show them the way. Although we'd like to eliminate that suffering, and indeed animals strive to eliminate their suffering, The suffering in some ways is is a natural shadow of the fact that animals have an interest and they're sentient. And likewise, when human will emerges, it casts a shadow of of relative imperfection. The fact that we can choose what's right means that that we, we can choose it freely. It's not just forced upon us, that if we choose it, we are partially responsible for that choice. The shadow of the reality of our free will is that there's this potential to embrace the darkness or to go backwards. So the universe was, in a sense, set up this way or created this way where we're, we're, you know, things are imperfect and we want to make them more perfect, and that means that evil is an abiding reality. But I think part of the way we can reconcile that with a loving universe is, of course, this idea of, of life after death, that the evolution of our consciousness continues after this body. I mean, that's certainly part of my belief system. I certainly don't claim to know uh, with any certainty or you know, detail but I do know that, that the universe doesn't make sense unless there's some kind of life after death. And if there is life after death, then I think that there would be abundant opportunity for the redemption of human suffering and evil. And indeed, those who suffered the most unjustly, those who were who perished in the Holocaust, for example, that the depths of the suffering that they experienced in the course of their universe evolution in the afterlife, that they'll be considered lucky. They'll be That'll be a gift, because the more depth of evil you've experienced, the greater joy of love that you could have by contrast. Right? So it's almost like the suffering that we experience in this world can be the inventory of our comparative joy uh, you know in our universe progression beyond this body. And in that sense we could say that the greatest affliction is to have never been afflicted.
0: <laughs>
1: and and then you know the p- part, of, uh, part of our journey is to experience that partiality because that's a necessary part of the experience of reaching perfection and our ultimate spiritual ascent.
0: Interesting. There was once this uh, sort of esoteric teacher that I listened to and I don't know how he knew this or whether he just got it from reading esoteric books himself but he used to say that, you know, when we come into this life, before we come into this life, we have like a little committee meeting or something with the Lords of Karma and we say, just lay it on, give me everything, I just want to get this, I just want to work it all out. And the Lords of Karma say, no, 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 you can't handle that much, we're only going to give you this much. And, and you say, oh, come on, I can take more than that. <laughs> you know, there's a sudden this negotiation that takes place and then finally you come into this life. And you know maybe you work off a shitload of karma, or maybe you don't but but it 's definitely in, in the interest of evolution, even though it doesn 't look pretty while we 're going through it
1: yes, yes, well, again, uh, you know that, that is there 's things we can experience and there 's things we can practice, but spiritual teachings are very important for framing these things and answering these questions, and a spiritual teaching of the evolution of consciousness in an afterlife i 'd say is a cornerstone of making sense of our human condition
0: yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, I've interviewed people who say that you know who say that we don't have any. There's no such thing as a personal self, and that therefore reincarnation couldn't work because that implies that there's some essence of us that gets to reincarnate, you know. And they say no, it doesn't happen. Uh, But like like you say in one of your four main points here about necessities of uh, evolutionary spirituality, the necessity of a spiritually real evolving soul. And like you say, it makes a heck of a lot of sense. It puts a lot of things into place. That The whole edifice sort of collapses if you pull that leg out.
1: Right. In other words, what, why are we here? What, what's the purpose of us being incarnated in these bodies, you know, yeah. in this crazy world? Obviously, I contend that, uh, and I think evolutionary spirituality confirms, that we're here to grow spiritually, and that, of course, we have... The infinite that lives within us that's already perfect right the higher self or you know There's many different terms the Atman you know the even emptiness itself could be kind of conceived as being this infinite that lives within us Mm -hmm. But that is some non-dual teachers teach that there's just the infinite right and then there's this ego self and the egos unreal And then we just have to get rid of the ego or transcend the ego and realize that we're already Infinite and that's who we are we're we're the infinite Mm -hmm. and I would say that that's not all wrong but I would say that that in between the interaction in time of this ego, personality, and body and everything that we have, and this infinite indwelling spirit that that sort of lives within us and is our true self, that in the interaction of that, something's growing, something's evolving, something's getting better. like right? the, the, the universe is, is is evolving spiritually in nature, culture, and self. Mm-hmm. so if this if there's some aspect of us that's growing spiritually, If there's nothing, if if we're just infinite already, then what's the point? Why even be incarnated in a body? Why even go through this finite realm of, of trying to make the world a better place and trying to grow spiritually? This concept that's most often known as a soul, right, that which is growing that's spiritually real within us, that's not just the temporal ego, but that's not the already perfect infinite spirit, but that's an evolving part, an accumulating body of our spiritual experiences that has spiritual reality and that can survive this body. Um, I would say that the the spiritual teachings of evolution point to a soul um, with very powerful arguments that that haven't been marshaled before, uh, you know, within the theistic religions, right? So so there's lots of arguments for self and no-self. And again, in the book, this is complex philosophy, and it's hard to land in an interview like this, but but in the book, I talk about how we can recognize the Buddhist teachings of no-self and the um, the Christian teachings of of us being beloved sons and daughters of a of a of a creator, how those two things don't necessarily you know at a lower level of understanding they might cancel each other out, right? Even Thich Nhat Han has been criticized for trying to smuggle the notion of a soul into Buddhism, mm-hmm. but Tikhon Han you know one of my favorite spiritual teachers he he's synthetic right he tries to to bring in spiritual truth from the theistic side and the non dual side. And I think he recognizes that things like free will, and the soul, and and the love of the universe, that these are real, despite any Buddhist teachings to the contrary. Yeah. Well,
0: as I understand it, Buddhist mythology or, or whatever talks a lot about all the past lives that Buddha had, you know, before he became the Buddha. And so, obviously, there must have been something that was carried from life to life as as his soul evolved. And the whole um, what this whole discussion implies is that we're not just meat puppets, but that there is a subtler level of reality which is not not physical, which you're not going to see under a microscope, and it brings in the whole notion of subtle matter or subtle realms, astral, celestial realms, that there could be beings living on those levels who don't have physical bodies at all, and uh, that makes perfect sense to me, but a lot of that probably sounds weird to a lot of other people.
1: Well, I mean, there there's spiritual truth that we can experience. And then there are spiritual teachings that go with that truth that we kind of have to take on faith like the afterlife or mm-hmm. like celestial beings or well, like you I know, you know people levels. who experience
0: them routinely. So for them sure. it's real.
1: <laughs> yes. And and uh, you know, but you've also got to be careful in yeah, that realm they can be because there's you know many people have been you know, kind of deluded and yeah. and it's it's dicey territory, but that doesn't mean we need to deny it altogether just because we have to tread lightly there.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's good to take everything as a hypothesis and, and be a little bit you know scientific about whether or not it's real and not just say, this couldn't possibly be.
1: Right. Well, I mean, one of my favorite quotes along those lines is from the philosopher uh, Blaise Pascal, mm-hmm. where he says that, that human things, or finite things, they must be known before they can be loved. Mm. But divine things, they have to be loved before they can be known. Right? And that's where this idea of faith comes in is this sort of super-conscious awareness and trust of this greater universe reality that it's only by sort of by, by allowing for it that we can begin to experience it and confirm it in our own experience.
0: Yeah, you know, and speaking of love, it reminds me of something I wanted to say a few minutes ago when you were talking about theism versus non-duality. It's like we have various faculties, you know, and one of those faculties is our heart. And um, I think it'd be possible to advance to a great degree spiritually without the heart having really blossomed to its full potential degree. But if and when it does, then a whole new dimension of experience can come in, which might render our previous level of development rather dry by comparison, you know, and devotion can become very profound, and I'm coming back to that word. Um, So it's not like you know, one side is right and the other side is wrong, it could be that both sides represent different facets or degrees of spiritual development, and that a a being in the course of its evolution, either in one life or many lives, will get to experience all those things, but at any particular stage they might be kind of locked into a a partial stage of development.
1: Sure, that's a great opening for an important part, important component of evolutionary spirituality, and indeed human philosophy for millennia, and that is this idea of the beautiful, the true, and the good. Mm-hmm. Right? Goodness, truth, and beauty, these are philosophical concepts, they're abstract words, but they point to some very profound truth about the direction of evolution. Right? So when I talk about perfecting the universe or growing spiritually, there's many different ways of conceiving that, we can't reduce it to a single group of concepts. But the light, that this philosophical truth itself of goodness, truth, and beauty being related, descriptions of the direction of evolution or the direction of perfection are profound. And so it relates to this idea of of whether you're on a spiritual path of truth or a spiritual path of beauty or a spiritual path of goodness, these things relate to each other, right? That they're, again, another kind of hermeneutic circle, right? So that is, beauty is, is sort of like the yin path. We're sort of receiving it. It's the more feminine. Truth is the more... It's the it's the seeking path, it's it's more yang, you know, yang and yin, many people are familiar with those concepts, receding mm-hmm. and seeking. And so the the beautiful and the true are like the two legs of goodness, mm-hmm. right? But ultimately if, if beauty or truth becomes separated from goodness, from oneness, from love, then they can lose their value power. So there's true facts, and then there's there's the truth as, a, as actually a direction of perfection. And in order to serve as a channel of spiritual energy or a path of development, the truth or an understanding of what's true has to bend toward goodness. It has to connect with goodness and be, be part of this system. Like these words are static words, beauty, truth, and goodness, but they name a dynamic course which isn't linear. It's, it's, it's both in and out and up, you know? And and so, again, these are, you know, we're just so skimming over the surface of deep teachings that ought to, you know, uh, th- this understanding of the spiritual philosophy of the beautiful, the true, and the good is a, a deep and wide uh, spiritual philosophy which originates in Plato. So, this conceptual triad of goodness, truth, and beauty, it's like a jewel of philosophy, a conceptual cathedral. And... Many spiritual practitioners within progressive spirituality initially don't don't know what to make of this proposition that goodness, truth, and beauty are sort of the the primary elements of spiritual experience or the, the directions of evolution through which we can make the world and ourselves more perfect. But one of the things that I can say in defense of this philosophical, conceptual, spiritual teaching... Goes back to our discussion of, of the, the evolution of worldviews, like post-modernity, but progressive spirituality. One of the ways that it tried to transcend modernity and, or you know, the sort of the rationalistic worldview of modernism, was by emphasizing goodness and beauty and kind of bracketing truth, right? Post, the post-modern worldview as a, as a whole kind of brackets truth by emphasizing the subjective side of truth, right? Truth's not merely objective, not merely subjective. It's the, 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 if I define it as the movement or you know, progression toward perfection, then it, it, it involves both of these things, both these concepts. But because progressive spirituality is very much about experience, because it's very much about a pluralistic welcoming of all spiritual paths, about being non-judgmental and accepting and, and, and allowing for whatever's true for you, I think that this is an important accomplishment But because of that, it's not as philosophically rigorous as, for example, modernist philosophy was, and again, for evolutionarily appropriate reasons. But now that we're trying to go the next step, beyond the antithesis, to a synthesis, one of the ways that we can accomplish that is by bringing back the truth, by being more rigorous about the truth, by being more critical. Truth is, by its nature, critical. Right? It's a ladder of distinctions. Everything is partial in the finite. So as soon as you say one proposition of truth, there's a partiality in that that points to the next rung, right? So we're sort of constantly ascending. That's why I talk about truth as a direction rather than, you know, a thing or a state. So, so we're bringing back the truth, and that means bringing back philosophical, intellectual, conceptual rigor to our spiritual teachings, right? And so we, we have spirituality. We have this abundant truth that we've discovered, both traditionally in our heritage as humans, and now most recently over the last 50 years through the blossoming of progressive spirituality. But this this um, this blossoming of progressive spirituality is a kind of truth that now we have a chance to integrate with the other momentous truth of our age, which is the truth of science. Right? So spirituality and science, obviously, they have an intersection. They both complement and contradict, or challenge each other, support and challenge, but the bridge between science and spirit, these two great repositories of human truth, is philosophy. Philosophy both bridges and separates, right, it keeps science from claiming everything that spirituality has to say, and it keeps spirituality from colonizing science, it allows them to, to be different domains of understanding. But it also shows how they complement and acts as a bridge. It bridges and separates. So that's, in this spiritual philosophy, the beautiful, the true, and the good, the realization of these as directions, as forms of spiritual energy, as behaviors of the nature of spirit in the finite, right? This is a a jewel of truth with many facets, many different ways of practicing and experiencing it. I I go through these facets in the presence of the infinite and and as well as in uh, my other books. And so it's, 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 I, as I would say that the, the, the practice of goodness, truth, and beauty, the practice of perfecting the universe of self, culture, and nature is one of the cornerstones of evolutionary spirituality and one of the paths, the philosophical paths, by which progressive spirituality can grow into a greater level of maturity and thereby provide better spiritual leadership for the society than it's currently providing. Hmm.
0: I suspect that a time will come when spirituality and science will both be seen as just tools within the overall human quest for for knowledge they won't be in the least bit contradictory or, or competitive they'll just be they'll, they'll just have different capabilities for discovering how the universe works and uh, if you think If you think about it, I mean, the human nervous system is a pretty sophisticated tool, far more so than the Hubble Space Telescope. And if it could be utilized properly, it can enable us to sort of plumb depths of reality that no man-made tool can enable us to do. And then also, in terms of science's contribution to spirituality, it can bring a, a sort of empirical quality to it and a rigor and a demand for experience rather than just, you know, belief that spirituality sometimes sorely needs.
1: Sure. Well, let me let me pick up on that, and and mention a little bit more about this uh, this idea of polarities, which I talked about before. I mean, and not just any differences, you know, black and white, hot and cold. I'm talking about these this rare and beautiful uh, discovery of uh, forms of value that are in an indestructible existential relationship of challenge and support, right? And so in, in, when we work with polarities as, as a construct or as a value-creating technology, if you will, there are three, in a sense, fallacies that accompany this. So three ways that people kind of go off track in, in recognizing how to use this. Physical energy has certain behaviors, and, and electrical engineers know that, there's a, that there are, there's a circuit and a pole and you have to sort of get it right. Spiritual engineering, if you'll pardon the term recognizes these fallacies in these value polarities. So one fallacy is always siding with the whole side. It's a, a, you know, the part and the whole is the characteristic of these polarities. So that, that some always side with the feminine, always side with the whole side. Some always side with the masculine, the particular side. And those are common fallacies. But another more subtle, but in some ways more frequent fallacy that you see in, in, when, when people who are in the postmodern worldview encounter these indestructible polarities is a compromise fallacy, where they want to just say it's both and. They're both true. There's no conflict. And, and it's all just different paths to the side of the same mountain, and it's all the same. And I would say that that eliminates the procreative tension, that's the indestructible feature of these polar structures, right? So just like, for example, we could, we could one example of this polar structure is the masculine and the feminine, right? These poles are not the same. They, they, they challenge and, and support each other, ideally, you know, in the middle is androgyny, right, there's nothing wrong with androgyny, but it eliminates the procreative tension. You know, in some ways it's like a compromise fallacy. And so, so when we have this tendency to say there's, there's this indestructible polarity between science or the sort of the, the understanding of the, the, the physical finite universe, and then there's spirituality, which is the understanding of the, the infinite universe of being, I mean, again, that's oversimplifying it, but just for purposes of illustration, if we say they're just the same thing, then we eliminate the procreative tension that, while we're here in the finite, is indestructible. You know, as we transcend time and space, as we transcend these finite, partial um, sort of forms of consciousness, You know, maybe these paradoxes will be resolved. But as long as we're here in the flesh, as long as we're here in this world of trouble and suffering, these are the conditions that we're going to be dealing with, no matter how enlightened we may become, I would argue. Because no matter how enlightened we may become, We're not gonna escape the duty to try to make the world a better place. Yeah. Because that's what spiritual growth is all about and that's our purpose in the universe, I would say.
0: Well, I wasn't saying a minute ago that I thought they were the same thing, science and spirituality. I was just I'm not
1: accusing you of that. I'm just pointing. Okay, good.
0: Yeah, I just think they have different capabilities. I mean spirituality was never gonna tell us about I don't know, DNA or many of the things that science has discovered. And science isn't gonna tell us much about God or angels or whatever else spiritual Seekers have encountered in their in their quest, and so you know if both of those types of things are part of the of the whole of what the universe is and how it's constructed, then both of these things science and spirituality are, are each tools which can explore their respective realms, and there shouldn't be any conflict between them
1: sure well, I mean there can be challenge there yeah. can be, there can be um, a demand of one on the other right and and so so, I, I, again, I don't think we necessarily need to characterize that as conflict, but I think we can, again, this, this notion of challenge and support, yeah. like with yeah. your kids, right? If you, all you do is support them, all you do is lavish love on them, and you never call on them to be better, right, then that's not going to be the best kind of parenting. Or if you're only challenging them, if you're just some kind of tiger mother, right, <laughs> that's not going to be uh, ideal either. So this this complementary working of spiritual growth or the growth of your kids through challenge and support is, is an important spiritual truth technology, if you will, that we can bring to bear on um, the problems that we face here in the human condition.
0: Good. A couple more questions have come in and I want to ask those, but uh, before we go too far from our discussion of beauty, truth and goodness, um, there was something I liked in your book that helped me understand what you're saying more concretely, and that was some, something Sri Aurobindo had apparently done, which was Correlate beauty with bhakti, truth with jnana, and goodness with karma. Each of those three are considered a path, or you know, bhakti yoga, kar- jnana yoga, karma yoga, and they're complementary, not conflicting or competing. And like you were saying, for instance, there, there have been spiritual teachers who were heavy on the jnana side but behaved reprehensibly. So they really didn't have it together. They could expound truth brilliantly and write great books but then they were debauchers and womanizers and you know, behaving reprehensibly, so they didn't really have it together in the goodness department. Um, so anyway, that I don't know if that's an example of what you're trying to say there, but I found it helpful in coming up with a concrete example such as that.
1: Sure, sure. Well, Aurobindo's depiction, as I uh, recounted, is that there are three paths open before the seeker, mm-hmm. right? Um, the, the path of beauty, the path of truth, and the path of goodness, and he characterized that as... Goodness as the path of action, right? Truth as the path of knowledge, and, and beauty as the sort of the path of ascetics. Again, he elaborates on those, and, and I do in my own way. But these aren't you know, obviously mutually exclusive, right? Yeah. Ideally, one informs the other, and that uh, uh the spiritual growth in its full in its fullness uh involves some aspect of all three of these paths.
0: Yep, you pull one leg of the table, and the others come along, <laughs> right? <laughs> Let me um, get to a couple of these questions. This one is from um, Ivan from Bulgaria. He asks, at a psychological level, being religious is similar to atheism. Religion is the function of the ego's need to feel protected by God. Conversely, atheists take the notion that they are not in control of their lives as the ultimate offensive, which is another expression of the ego functioning. Do you have any thoughts on this?
1: First of all, the human ego, right, in many corners of progressive spirituality, is seen as bad, right? You know, ego, bad. Ego, overcome it. Ego, you know, it's, it's, it's evil. It's materialistic. And I would say that just like we condemn the mortification of the body, like in Catholicism, right, in a hair shirt or the whips on the back, the mortification of the ego is also something that I'd like to try to overcome because we, just like we need a body, although we're not our body, we need ego, although we're not our ego, right? You know, try raising kids without an ego, right? Try to, try to make the world a better place without an ego. you got to have some self-sense. Yeah, try knowing so where to put the fork, So first say that, that the ego is not, we don't want to reify it or make it the ultimate reality, but we don't want to just, you know, vilify it either, okay? Right. Now, obviously, people are striving to make the world a better place, they're striving to improve the human condition, they're striving to grow in the beautiful, the true, and the good. And the great world religions that are now with us it's important to see those as trying to solve problems in history. Right? So the, the conditions of the pre-traditional, if you will, or or, or before the, the civilizing influences of these world religions took hold in their respective cultures, there was chaos, there was warlords, there was, you know, no law, no government, it was just it was crazy violent and brutish and short. And so religion comes along and, and a big part of its focus is dealing with those problematic life conditions. Right? So, there's a lot of evolutionary scaffolding, if you will, a lot of negative things that we can see that, that are part of religion today that were originally constructed as ways of controlling this gnarly set of life conditions that the religions inherited when they first emerged. Right? So, that's a an you know, sort of existential human condition that, that's a step in our progress. We have to overcome that warring craziness that exists before a civilization begins to create some container. Right? So we can it's easy now that we've transcended those conditions to see the scaffolding that was once once essential for dealing with those conditions as you know just pathologies or legacies, right? we can view that scaffolding, the negativity or, or the pathologies of religion. We can view it more sympathetically when we see it in developmental in a developmental perspective. It sees you know that it was trying to do what it came before. and now that most of us have transcended that religious worldview. We can understand that there's accomplishments of that religious worldview that are a foundation of our civilization. We can't just dissolve it. We can't just discredit it. We can't just throw it out, right? We have to tease apart the dignities from the disasters because the dignities are part of the structure of emergence that we need and the disasters are the scaffolding that we now no longer need and we can remove. And that's an ongoing process, right? So religion is easy to vilify, but I would say that um, we're standing on its shoulders and just like we want to honor our parents, we want to honor our cultural heritage, right? Same with atheism. Atheism, just like, you know, not all religion is fundamentalist, right? The straw man characterization of it is that these you know, these are Bible-thumping, prejudiced people. But there's many people who are, they, they make meaning in the world through this religious lens. They are religionists, and they belong to these religions, and they believe in these religions, and they are loyal to these religions. They're not all fundamentalists, right? Yes. They're not all The the straw man that we see are the most negative aspects. Same with modernists. Practically all modernists are rational and they want evidence and they're skeptical. That's a part of modernist consciousness that's good, that we need. Now, there's a fundamentalism that develops, right, as a sort of eddy in the flow, and that's this this subset of atheism. But just like fundamentalists can't claim to represent all of religionists, atheists can't claim to represent all of modernity, Many modernists are too smart to fall for that kind of fundamentalism, and so it's a matter of appreciating what came before by recognizing that there's this, this duty of, of teasing apart the good from the bad is ongoing. It's like rinsing a glass you know, with dish soap. You, know, you have to keep rinsing it until you know, it's finally cleaned out, and that's a process that occurs over history, and it's a process that we can begin to, to do now that we have this opportunity to make meaning from an integral perspective.
0: Yeah. I think one thought to always entertain when we think about religions is to remember that party game where you whisper something in somebody's ear and they whisper it to the next and it goes around the room and by the time it gets back to you it's very different than what you originally whispered. I mean, you know, these great religious leaders came out and got something going and, but now, you know, thousands of years have passed and who knows what you know, they originally said compared to what's being said now. The things get distorted over time administrators take over who are not mystics by, by nature, and uh, you know, and pedophiles get involved and all kinds of crazy stuff happens that um, would make the founders of these religions roll in their graves. It's, it's necessary to distinguish between religions as in their pure and emergent form, uh, you know, when, the, then, when, the, it's found, when their founders were alive and what we have now.
1: Sure. Let, let me add to that. One of the ways that, it's, that we can understand religion or, you know, these sort of world religions more sympathetically is instead of just seeing them as structures that exist in this pre-modern traditional stage of consciousness and culture, we can see them as lines of development that grow up through the stages, right? So, so you know, the, the founders of these religions were off the charts in terms of consciousness and culture, but it's clearly the, the, the cultural expression of these religions are mostly rooted in the traditional worldview, right? And 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 if we see them as lines, we can see how they grow from the traditional worldview through the modernist worldview through the postmodern worldview, and now they have these new shoots that are emerging in this new worldview, this this post postmodern or integral worldview. And so we can we can recognize that that Christianity and Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam and Judaism and all the great world religions are not merely traditional. That there are some very awake people who still identify with these religions, but who are carrying forward these Lines of spiritual development into these higher stages of consciousness and culture, and thereby they're informed by things like pluralistic acceptance and tolerance and recognizing the truth that everybody holds, and and you know these 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 very important um, accomplishments of, for example, postmodernism that make us more loving and inclusive and tolerant, pluralistic, open, accepting. These are things which which we can see in postmodern versions of Christianity and Buddhism and, and Hinduism. And and even though postmodernism and its progressive spiritual culture have, for evolutionarily appropriate reasons, as I mentioned earlier, favor the eastern forms of spirituality because that's where they could get the most growth, ultimately all the great world religions represent um, uh, world historical lines of development that which will continue to grow and which deserve our you know respect and appreciation.
0: Yeah. A question came in from Niraj in Bangalore, um, who, which relates to what you were just saying, and perhaps you can elaborate just a little bit more. Basically, he, he said, "What difference have you seen between Western and Eastern spiritual seekers?"
1: Well, I mean, it, it, it's it's hard to to give a big answer to that question because um, I don't think that. I, I want to stereotype Western seekers and, and Eastern seekers or and sort of put them in that East-West box. Mm-hmm. I think um, spiritual seekers uh, are drawn by different spiritual currents. I think that, for example, people who are spiritual seekers in the Eastern tradition can nevertheless feel the pull of currents which have been more associated with the West. As we see, for example, with Thich Nhat Hanh, right? He's a Zen Buddhist, right? Zen is in some ways the most apophatic, or the most void-committed version of Buddhism, and yet here is Thich Nhat Hanh, one of the leaders of Zen Buddhism, who very much resonates with these Western currents. So we can talk about Eastern spiritual teachings, or the non-dual experience that go, or that are most often associated with those. But while I know people and seekers from all over the world, I mean, I'm an American I live in American culture. You know, I've, I've certainly taught in Europe, uh, but um, I I wouldn't claim to really be able to characterize in a stereotypical way what Eastern seekers and Western seekers are like or what they're about.
0: Okay, Thich Nhat Hanh might actually be an example of what I was saying earlier that you know we have hearts and at a certain point they may blossom and even if we've been raised in a um, apophatic spiritual tradition, we might find ourselves beginning to appreciate and express um, you know much more heart centered um, and theistic um, f- ideas and feelings. I think Adyash- sure. Adyashanti is another example. He was ran- raised in a Zen tradition, but he t- talks a lot about the heart and, and exudes a lot of heart in, in his personality and his teaching.
1: Sure. And, and certainly non-duality is characterized by compassion, right? Love, uh, Buddhism is saturated with love. Yeah. Um, even though theologically, um, there are some paradoxes that are you know, not resolved in that body of teaching, I would argue, and I, again, I argue for it in my book, uh, uh, Presence of the Infinite, but, but uh, just like the realization of oneness is not just relevant to the uh, Eastern spiritual path, that's an important, it, it has an expression within Christianity and within Western traditions as well, so there's clear overlap, there's clearly, even though we can say that Christianity is mainly theistically oriented and Buddhism is mainly oriented toward the non-dual, you know, no one spiritual path has a lock on a particular kind of truth, Mm. Um, and indeed spiritual truth is open for every seeker who pursues spiritual experience through, you know, practice and teaching.
0: Yeah, we say, you know, love others as yourself because they are yourself.
1: (laughs) Right, well that's one way to put it, sure. But I would argue, you know, from a philosophical point of view, again, we're bringing in this critical philosophy, and we're saying that love, it's irreducibly relational. Love is a relation. David Loy, in his book published by Yale in the eighties, you know, about non dual philosophy, he sort of struggles with this. He talks out of both sides of his mouth, right? He talks about, you know, the, the Dharmakaya being emanating of love. But then he talks about the, the problem with trying to conceive of what love is within a non-dual ontology, because there's if there's no separation, there's no real relation. The relations are an illusion, and if the relations are an illusion and love's irreducibly relational then how do you how do you reconcile the truth of love within a non-dual ontology? I think you just have a more roomy ontology that allows for yeah. these paradoxical contradictions.
0: Well, if David wrote that in the 80s, I think maybe he's evolved a lot since then. I've interviewed him twice, and I was at the science and non-duality conference one time where someone up on stage was speaking in a rather dry tone. David got up on the mic and started asking him about the environment and the world and what's going to happen to everybody if we don't do something about climate change. And and the guy's response was like, eh, the world is just a speck of dust, you know, it doesn't matter what happens, it's all an illusion. And and David just really persisted and, uh, you know, said, no, we we, we can't dismiss it that way, you know, I mean, we're talking about something real, I mean, in a relative sense, human suffering and we have to have compassion and so on. I'm sure we've all evolved a lot since the 80s.
1: Sure. Well, I'm not saying that David Loy was arguing for a world-denying theology. Uh-huh. I'm just saying that philosophically, if you want to have love, and it, in it's a robust sense, then you need a relationship between, you know, lover and loved. Yeah, and again, yeah. this is a philosophical complex thing. It's probably not good to try to delve into here. But let me let me go back to your point about the environment, mm-hmm. okay? Because that's really, I would say, the historical challenge of our age, you know, the 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 biggest uh, problem in the world yeah, that agree. we have right now. Yep. And that in order to address this, we're going to need to recognize how the reason that we're politically stymied from making a significant impact on climate change and, and taking it as seriously as we need to is because we're caught up in this uh, thesis and antithesis of modernity and postmodernity. Mm-hmm. You know, again, this is a whole political analysis, but let me just say that, that, that a very important accomplishment... Of this postmodern consciousness that we're talking about is environmental awareness, right? Even though you know modernity tries to clean up its nest, even though modernity tries to get rid of the pollution so that property values can go up, <laughs> you know, the 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 the, the spiritual um, obligation that we have as stewards of the earth and stewards of the environment is very much a postmodern realization and a postmodern accomplishment, and because the activism around global warming is so associated with postmodern, postmodern worldview and postmodern politics, I think one of the underlying reasons that we're having such a difficult time you know, mobilizing the political will to deal with this effectively is, be, is, is that it's, it's been caught up, the environmental movement has been caught up in this larger cultural struggle between modernity and postmodernity because so many modernists and traditionalists especially Feel invalidated by the antithesis of postmodernism. They feel that you know they're only seen for their negatives and they're not appreciated as the, the grandparents of the parents, if you will. Mm-hmm. That that because post because you know concern for global warming is so clearly near and dear to the hearts of postmodernists, that because postmodernists are seen as the threatening enemy by the mainstream, anything they can do to poke postmodernism in the eye, it helps you know kind of reduce that sense of being threatened. Mm-hmm. And so because the, the postmodernists are so anti-modernist because they discount the gifts of modernity and sort of see only for these pathologies, they're shooting themselves in the foot in their ability to persuade the larger society to get serious about combating climate change. So that's why this integral perspective of these this evolution of worldviews explains things politically and points to, to important resolutions that are otherwise um, impossible to see from within the purview of any one of these worldviews.
0: Interesting. Well, you segued right into something I wanted to ask you about, which was what you're doing with this uh, Institute for Cultural Evolution, this, you know, integral political think tank. And taking the example we just discussed, climate change, how can we move beyond this conflict between the modernists and postmodernists and actually do something about climate change? Sure. And there could be many other examples we might consider, but that's, uh, that's probably the most important
1: one. Right, right. Well, this is, in some ways, the heart of the book that I'm working on now, that I've been working on for two years now. good. Sneak peek. Uh, Developmental Politics Mm -hmm. is the tentative title. Ah. And it's about a new view of politics that takes this integral perspective and applies it to politics and uh, recognizes that in order to solve these existential problems, we need to grow culturally. We need to mature. We need to grow into a better version of ourselves. And that involves this move from you know the antithesis to a synthesis. That involves a reconciliation, at least partially, of the conflict, the existential conflict between these major three these three major worldviews: traditionalism, modernism, and postmodernism. In America, right, modernity is the majority worldview. About 50% of the American electorate make meaning or have loyalty to that reality frame. Traditionalism is about thirty percent and this progressive postmodern worldview represents about 20%. I mean, it's growing. We see its political movement, for example, with the near success of Bernie Sanders. But Trump and his election, as it says, a testimony to the impotency of the current political impotency of postmodernism. And this is actually a, an important transition trigger. So each one of these worldviews, right, th- there are many people who are content to live their lives within these worldviews, and it can have spiritual realization and... Perfect the universe and be perfectly good spiritual beings. I mean, this hierarchy of worldviews isn't necessarily a hierarchy of people, right? There are people who are much more spiritually awake within a traditional worldview than there are postmodernists who are jerks, right? So it's it's again, we can't, you know, we can't necessarily think of this in a linear way. But nevertheless, these worldviews do grow in their inclusionary complexity, I mean, we can we can argue there are many important ways in the beautiful, the true, and the good in which these worldviews do represent authentic evolutionary progress. But there's a transition trigger. So if you're a traditionalist, there's an existential problem that goes with that that can't be solved at the same level that created it. You know, Einstein's famous rhetoric that some problems can't be solved at the same level that created them. Well, if you're a traditionalist, you live in a mythic worldview that's contradicted by science. And that's an existential problem that can't be solved. So a lot of people grow up in traditional households, they go to college, they get educated, and they say, I can't believe in the myth anymore, because there's too many contradictions. That's a transition trigger. Likewise, modernity. People get, they, they succeed in modernity. They get status. They get material. They get wealth. And they look around and say, is this all there is? You know, there's there's more to it, right? They don't want to go back to relying on religion for their existential meaning, but they can't find existential meaning entirely within the values of modernity. And that's a transition trigger to the wider spiritual view of postmodernism, right? People who postmodernists, again, this is a relatively new worldview, so the transition trigger is not as strong, but as postmodernism now, in our time, is reaching a kind of maturity, it's coming to sort of, in its fullness... It's moving from, you know, a a synthesis to a a thesis that calls forth another step. Its transition trigger is its relative political impotency. In other words, that that postmodernists are screaming from the rooftops that we've got to do something about global warming. And we've got fires, and we've got crazy weather. We've got all this, you know, in-your-face evidence of global warming and the urgency of it. And the spiritual implications of us ruining the planet with modernity are huge, right? So this is an urgent... Dire world historical emer- emergent problem that postmodernists can see, but they can't convince the rest of the society to to get on board with the necessary changes and the necessary sacrifices that will be necessary to adequately address this, you know, emergent problem. Yeah, and it's, so just, that's it's a just a
0: hoax perpetrated by the Chinese that gain economic right, right, right. advantage over. What the
1: over hell? Them. <laughs> How come they can't? These are facts. How come they can't wake up? To them? Well, the reason they can't wake up to them is that it's not a matter of fact, it's a matter of value. It's a matter of postmodernism being very threatening to everything that's come before. All of the accomplishments of modernity and traditionalism, those people who are making meaning and have loyalties to those worldviews can feel the threat to all of the great liberal values, right? the threat to all of the important accomplishments of freedom, of liberty, that that modernity has brought about. Postmodernism takes for granted. It's using those freedoms but in some ways it doesn't respect them enough because it sees modernity only for its negatives, right? So it can't see, you know, the the world-changing, spiritually-significant emergence of liberal values, which are very much modernist. So because these other people are threatened by postmodernism, the political programs of postmodernism are naturally resisted, and the major political programs of, of postmodernism are environmental and social justice, and while we're making some headway environmentalism's kind of stuck. You know, even among left, you know, center-left Democrats, they may give lip service to it, but when you see the list of, of the, the issues of the Democratic Party, they've done the focus groups. They know that people who are not postmodern resist that, you know, for emotional reasons, for reasons that have to do with threats to their identity, not reasons that have to do with the facts of global warming. So this trigger of, of saying, look, in order to get the rest of the society to, to wake up, to this huge existential threat, we actually have to be include them in a way. We, know we have to have a worldview and a set of values that, that, that doesn't just see them for their pathologies, but, but says, look, modernity is, is, is a very important accomplishment in the structure of emergence that is, you know, in sacred and in, in, in similar ways that nature is sacred. And we can't just sort of run roughshod over modernity or pretend that it's some kind of utility or that it's just greedy capitalism and we need to quash it. I would say that until we have a worldview that can include and honor and persuade and bring forward uh, these other segments of our society, we're not going to get the solidarity that we're going to need to generate the political will to deal with this um, existential challenge of global warming. And that's where the politics of this integral perspective offer solutions that postmodernity can't offer within its the purview of its cultural worldview.
0: It mm. seems to me that the consequences of global warming are becoming more and more severe, and you know, I wonder if, you know, if people can't be convinced through words whether the fires and the floods and the, you know, and the droughts and all the other things that are going to happen in the sea level rise and everything else uh, might convince them in a more severe way.
1: Well, I mean, certainly uh, if all of a sudden there's a tsunami that wipes out Seattle, right, yeah. or, or, you know, there there's some uh, – uh, but, but I don't think we can wait or rely upon, um, you know, the mounting evidence of it yeah. because the, 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 there, just like there's no rational argument that's going to convince Sam Harris, right, there's no rational argument that's going to take away the existential threat of postmodernism in the, in the gut feelings of the voters of America – because to, to empower the, the, the forces of combating global warming, again, most people are unaware, this stuff's going on at a kind of a subconscious level. Right. These opinions are being formed in ways that have to do with, with identities and loyalties and not with rational thinking. Yeah. But, but, but until the threat of postmodernism itself is transcended, then, and, and, and global warming is seen as not just a, you know extreme left political football or an issue then we're gonna have these these deep identity level barriers to building the political will to deal with it. So maybe, you know, maybe the the threats will wake people up, but I'd say that until we deal with these cultural issues, um, we're not gonna get the adequate political will we need, which is a lot of political will.
0: So putting on your most idealistic glasses, I mean, how would you see things evolving over the next five, 10, 20 years, Um, you know, let Let's say that we we really do manage not to exterminate ourselves and that we evolve into a society in which you know maybe uh, evolutionary spirituality becomes the predominant um, meme or predominant you know mindset or at least a uh, potent one enough to really profoundly influence the culture. How would you see that sort of happening and evolving and what what some kind of specific i don't know steps and types of politicians and, and whatnot would, would, would have to come along in order for that sure. to be achieved.
1: Sure. Well, let me say first that the way evolution occurs, it occurs in many ways. Right? It, that is, there's both evolution that occurs within a worldview, an existing worldview, as it matures and, and, and accomplishes the, the things it, that it's focused on getting done, but the more profound kinds of evolution occur when there's an emergence, a step that transcends the conditions that came before. Right. So we see you know, this throughout the universe, Right. There's, first there's hydrogen and helium, then the heavier elements emerge, and then life emerges, and then all the steps of the biological tree of life. These are, in a sense, radical emergences, ingressions of novelty, as Terence McKenna would say, you know, that can't be predicted. Right? So there's something about this next level of emergence that we can't entirely predict just like you can't predict that the combination of hydrogen and helium would produce liquidity hmm. and water and surface tension and all things it just emerges out of nowhere well i don't know but but you know what i mean Com-
0: yeah completely so, unpredicted so, so this by
1: this step hmm. we can begin to see that there's something beyond what i'm calling the postmodern world that there's there's a next step and that has to involve a certain amount of repudiation of postmodernism it has to be a sort of pushing off so hegel you know, who kind of originally envisioned this evolutionary process or, or structure of emergence, he didn't talk about thesis, antithesis, synthesis, and a lot of dialectical philosophers really hate that characterization because they think it's too mechanical. It's oversimplified, right? It's, sort of, it's a moving process, and when you put it into steps, it, it, the dance is you know it, it's no longer fluid. So what Hegel described it as you know, sort of an affirmation, something real, and then in order to move beyond a negation, there's a negation of that, of, of the problems that go with that to a new level. That's the antithesis. And then the next step beyond the original negation is what he called the negation of the negation. And what that means is that the this, this step beyond involves recognizing that, that there are certain things that, that needed to be condemned or overcome or transcended, but that in order to create the new whole that is the synthesis, you can't just be in the negative. You have to reclaim some of the stuff, the good part that was already there in the original affirmation. So this this idea of negation of the negation as the synthesis is an important philosophical lens because it helps us see that there's things about postmodernism. It's anti-modernism. It's rejectionism. It's, you know, in a sense, elitism. Like we're conscious and you're not. You know, we're awake and you're asleep. Right? While postmodernism is indeed a very important moral step, a new level of care, right? Care for the environment, care for the disadvantaged. This is permanent in our structure of emergence. We need this. We can't go beyond it without carrying forward and building on, standing on the shoulders of those accomplishments. But we also have to negate the, the sort of the rejection, the the. The, the vilification of modernity and all of modernity's accomplishments that, that so much of postmodern culture stands for. So much of, you know, indeed this is where it's, it's, it's gained its traction by, by using the, the bad parts of modernity. You say, we want better. We're not gonna stand for that. Um, so that's an important step. But this next step, politically, socially, culturally, spiritually, is to, um, is to recognize, to step outside this postmodern worldview and to see how it relies upon and indeed borrows the the social capital and the accomplishments of traditionalism and modernism, and that, like all forms of evolution, you can't pull the rug out from from where it was, right? So so we need to go beyond this rejectionistic spirit, this way in which postmodernism sees the other stages as only negative, because these other stages have a lot of positive nature that we need to affirm. So, getting to your question, what does it look like? I would say that this emergence will have a period of cultural fluorescence. The best way to anticipate what it might be like is to look at the previous points of emergence of these other worldviews, right? So the emergence of traditionalism is buried deep in the past, you know, with the emergence of writing, right, say, like 3,000 years ago or more, 4,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, anyway. Traditionalism itself has emerged, right, but you can see it in ancient Egypt, a kind of early form of it. You can see it in any of the ancient civilizations but modernity even though we can see proto versions of it in ancient greece and in islam and china it emerges as a permanent structure of human consciousness and culture during the enlightenment right in the in the 16 and 1700s and so the history of the enlightenment is well known right there were luminaries there were new there was new philosophy there was new truth there was science there were new discoveries there were revolutions there was democracy you know, there, there are all these, these historical emergences, industrial revolution, that came about through the sequence of emergence of modernity, right? Likewise, postmodernism as a worldview, again, we can see it percolating within modernity, but in the 60s it breaks out, right? So there's a slogan, right, with, I mentioned, liberty, equality, and fraternity, you know, captures the spirit of the age, the spirit of enlightenment, the spirit of the emergence of modernity. Likewise, the 60s, it has a similar slogan, turn on, tune in, drop out you know, reject modernity, reject the rat race, right? That's a liberating slogan that heralds this, this you know, spiritual renaissance or this emergence of the postmodern worldview. So I think we're going to see a kind of a second enlightenment or a second um, emergence of new truth, uh, you know, as, as happened in the first enlightenment, as will happen in the second enlightenment, as this evolutionary worldview or this integral perspective Um, begins to gain traction in our culture by becoming visible, by pulling in agreement, by gaining notoriety, popularity, political power, cultural power, by challenging postmodernism, by being more sympathetic to the values of modernity and traditionalism. So whether this cultural emergence is going to occur in the next decade or in the next 50 years is hard to say. I I try to um, use the analogy of the emergence of the 60s, right? So... We can see, in some ways, the emergence of this postmodern consciousness in Rousseau, right, in the in the 1700s, or even more concretely in the writings of the transcendentalists like Emerson and Thoreau, right. They were they were modernity, they were naturalists and into nature, they embraced Eastern spirituality. Almost all of the elements of, of postmodern thinking were exemplified in the 1840s by the transcendentalists. But it wasn't until you know, 120 years later that it sort of burst forth and, and emerged as a separate and discrete worldview, right? So then we could also point to the beatniks of the 50s. They were also avatars of postmodern consciousness, even though they were before the 60s. So the question is, in our quest for this post-postmodern cultural stage, are we like the transcendentalists and there's going to be another century? Or are we like the beatniks and it's the next decade? Things are you know, speeding we really up. Tell.
0: I don't think we can wait that long.
1: Well, certainly the, the life conditions, the urgency of the problems are part of what catalyzes the emergence. But again, we have to garden for it. We can't think about it as social engineering. We can't construct it. You know, We have to foster it. It's a living thing. And so we're gardening for emergence more than we're engineering for it. Mm-hmm. And gardening for emergence requires a certain amount of, of the recognition of grace in the process. It's not just all up to us, you know, there's the flow of the Tao, and it flows in the patterns that it will. So while the existential challenges that we face call for further evolution, and we are indeed urgently pulled into some more inclusive version of our culture, whereby we can overcome the culture war, at least partially, and reestablish the ability to make compromises and agree with each other and form the political will that's necessary to deal with our problems, but in order to do that, our political problems really are caused by a cultural problem that's upstream. And the cultural problem is that we're in this situation where we need an emergence, right? But my optimism that this is going to happen is based on the pattern of evolution itself, right? So evolution, when it was first realized in the 19th century, was characterized as a process of differentiation followed by integration at a higher level. Right? So that's where we are now. We're in this phase of differentiation where the worldviews with American culture stretched out by its own development. We have these three major worldviews that are in political competition. But this this um, this diversification or divergence will either lead to regression or it will presage the emergence of a synthesis or a higher level of integration, which is what this integral philosophy and integral worldview represent.
0: Wow, that's great. Well... Probably we should leave it there. That was a good note to end on, and uh, you know when oh,
1: you f- and optimistic indeed.
0: Yeah, and when you finish that book you're working on, uh, let's do it again.
1: Great, right. I'd love to do that.
0: It's been extremely enlivening to my feeble brain to have this conversation with you and to prepare for this interview. It's just really gets me firing on all cylinders you know and uh, has clarified a lot of my understanding about a lot of things. So I really I hope that the audience felt that way too. Um,
1: sure, well, I've enjoyed the conversation. I mean, you're you're a, a, an awake and aware person yourself, and so you know we can't have these kind of conversations until you know it takes one to know one, sort of thing.
0: Yeah, and actually that reminds me of something I was going to add based on what you were just saying, which is that you know however this more ideal world might emerge, um, the most fundamental contribution we can make is to foster our own spiritual development, not in a selfish way, but uh, as, as a sort of a foundation of everything else we might be doing to contribute to the world, but you know, make sure that's taken, being taken care of in an in effective way. And then, like you said, grace will, will probably take care of it, um, you know, the, in my estimation that the intelligence governing the universe is far vaster than we can realize, and in my own personal life you know, things have often turned out in ways that I couldn't have anticipated or predicted or engineered as ideally as they actually turned out to be. I would have gone off in some other direction, but you know, nature or God or whatever had a better idea.
1: Uh, sure, sure. Uh, and let me just add that, that, I mean, while we can affirm, and I affirm, that all things, you know, in time work together for good, mm-hmm. and that all suffering is redeemed, mm-hmm. I also think that we, we need to feel the heat you know, yeah. both literally and figuratively. And, and uh, w- you know, we need to feel a sense of urgency and a sense of responsibility to do our part. We can't just sort of rely on God to take care of everything because God has delegated some of that responsibility to us as agents mm-hmm. of evolution. Yeah. And it's possible that we could screw things up and go backwards in a big way um, if we don't have a sense of urgency and a sense of responsibility to try to work for a better world.
0: Yeah, God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> and And one thing that's not helpful, I think, is... For people to despair, you know, to feel like, oh, the, the, the problems of the world are just too vast, and we're we're screwed. You know, it's not we're not we're not going to make it. Um, you know, I think that that nature or God, again, I don't know what term we want to use, has a few tricks up its sleeve, and that if we do from our side, there's, there's some some of the spiritual teacher. I forget who it was said. You know, you take one step toward me, and I'll take a thousand steps toward you. And mm. I, I think that could be said of the divine in general. you know it's like um, if we're doing our part, Holding up our stick to evoke a, a, a story from uh, the Srimad Bhagavatam, where all these villagers—well, let me just tell a story real quick, because it's yeah, uh, do it. Yeah. Um, so Indra was mad at Krishna for some reason. He was jealous because all the villagers were devoted to Krishna. So he made it rain and rain and rain, which is actually happening seriously in southern India right now. And so Krishna, to save the village, took some mountain and, and held it up with one hand as an umbrella. And the villagers, uh, all, all, after a while, they appreciated that, but they thought, oh, you know, it could strain his wrist or something, holding this thing up all by himself, so they all picked up sticks and helped him hold up the mountain. And actually, they weren't really doing anything, but the effort you know, was meaningful. We um, all
1: supported. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> so we you know, do our best to hold up our sticks, and even though ultimately the Divine may be doing everything, um, maybe the Divine won't, you know, won't bother if we don't bother.
1: Right, you know, free—that's what comes back to our discussion of free will at the beginning. Yeah, you know, we're given free will, and to those who are given, much is expected.
0: Yeah, yeah, good. All right, well, you and know, I could keep going on all day. So let's right. leave it at that.
1: We'll look forward to next time. Yeah. And thanks again for having me on. But at the gas pump, it's an honor to be with you, Rick.
0: Yeah, thank you. And uh, let me just make a brief concluding remark or two. I've been speaking with Steve McIntosh. I'll be, he'll be—he'll have a page on BatGap linking to his books and his website. Um, and uh, this is part of an ongoing series there have been hundreds previous to this and and check them out uh, under the past interviews menu at bathgap.com next week i'll be speaking with an old friend of mine named suzanne Stryker, who lives right here in fairfield um, and is i would say um, an artist a a healer and a mystic all three and um, has always had very profound spiritual experiences so that'll be next week and the week after her is Jean houston who many of you will have heard of So anyway, stay tuned. If you'd like to be notified of future interviews, um, subscribe on YouTube, and they'll tell you about them. And also subscribe on BatGap to the little email that I send out every week when I've posted a new one, and then you'll be notified. So thanks for listening or watching, and we'll see you for the next one. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Rick. Bye-bye.
1: Bye.